0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Today we're going to be reading Colossians 3 1 through 17. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him.
1: Amen. Yeah, you can give her a clap. I gave Savannah a long one today, so she deserves a little recognition for reading all of that. Uh, Yes, I keep track of the good readers, and I give them the long passages, (laughs) just for the record. Anyways. All right, so uh, we don't actually read this word in our passage for today, but have you? when you ever read the Bible, do you ever run across the word kingdom a lot? You can raise a hand or nod your head or any of that. The word kingdom is a, is a word that we're very familiar with in the Scriptures. It happens, it happens to be said a lot, and it's a word that I say a lot. As a pastor up front on Sundays, it's a word that comes out of my mouth very often. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is because Jesus ta- uses this word kingdom often to describe what he's doing. And the Bible uses the word kingdom a lot to talk about what is actually going on in the scriptures, about what this kind of reorientation of the world around Jesus is all about. And this made sense to the people who first heard it because they actually lived in a time when they had kings and queens, right? In the Roman world at the time, they had a Caesar, but the Caesar was just kind of a Roman king, essentially, um, or monarch. But needless to say, in order to understand this idea of a kingdom, you kind of have to have a slight understanding of what a kingdom is and how it functions. In order to really understand what it was that Jesus was getting at, it's important that we look at this idea of kingdom and understand it to a certain extent. But this is difficult for us, isn't it? Because we are Americans. And we do not have kings and queens in our culture. There are, if we lived in England, maybe it would be easier for us. Not really, because their king and queen are kind of fake. Um, they don't really don't do anything anymore. Uh, we, know, we know King George has to wear short pants until he's seven, but that's about all eight. Okay, eight. But that's about all I know. We were thinking about making Elliot only wear short pants until he was eight. But, and I said, doesn't he get cold? And Ashley said he has to have high socks, too. So you have short pants and high socks, and it keeps your, it keeps your little princely legs warm, I guess. <laughs> Anyways, but this is an interesting idea, right, of a kingdom, of a kingdom. What, what is a kingdom? Jesus even teaches his disciples to pray, thy kingdom come, right? Your God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus comes announcing the kingdom of God, and he says in some real and true sense that in his presence or in his person, the kingdom of God has been inaugurated. It has begun in some real and true sense. But it's hard for us to understand exactly what this means. But in in essence, I'm going to try to sum it up for us here. Jesus has ultimate authority, right? Right? Basically, we learned earlier in the book of Colossians that Jesus is the rightful king, the ruler of the world, that he is actually the creator and sustainer of the world. Paul uses this language in, in uh, Colossians, uh, Colossians 1 to really kind of communicate this idea to the church to which he is writing. And in fact, Jesus has full authority, right? This is what Paul's attempting to communicate, that in some real and true sense, Jesus has full authority, But that full authority, that authority that Jesus has over the earth as its king, as its ruler, as its Lord, as its creator, is not visible completely, right? It's not completely and utterly visible. And Paul says, essentially, that even though this kingdom that Christ has and that Christ is seated as the ruler of the world in some real and true sense. His authority is not fully vested, right, if you want to use an economic term. It is not fully visible in our world. And yet, Christians are people who acknowledge that Jesus is king and live in line with that reality. They live in line with that truth. Now, when I was trying to figure out exactly how to explain this idea, what kept coming to mind? To my mind was the wild West. Does anybody like Westerns? Uh, yes. All of the people who wore cowboy hats today love Westerns, surprisingly <laughs> enough. I love Westerns. I love that you can have like a 10-minute scene of two guys standing at like opposite ends of a town, and just because of the music and close-ups of like mustaches twitching, it can be like really dramatic, right? It's a far all we get is close ups of mustaches. It's a far cry from the Transformer movies, but I really enjoy it. Uh, this idea of the Wild West, does anybody know that uh, the Wild West, that era we think of as the Wild West, was really only like 20 or 30 years? I actually learned this from my mom, who taught some history classes. Uh, I think you had it in a National Geographic or something. Uh, but uh, that period began in like 1986, or 1886, sorry. 1886. I was born in 1984. Uh, in uh, 1886, and it only carried through to about 30 years. It only carried through about 30 years. And what happened in the Wild West, what was actually going on there, was that after the Civil War, America had these vast swaths of uh, the western continent of North America, right? And uh, people who fought in the military and settlers from the east began moving west faster than the American government's rule of law could keep up with them right and so you would get these pockets of places in the American West this vast territory where technically America was the was the civil authority right technically you were living in America but in in practically speaking in reality the authority of America did not was not brought to bear in that place right and so you could have gunfights and you could have cattle rustling and you could have all the things that make for good movies, right? In Dodge City, Kansas and Yuma, Arizona and all of these places, you have this area where, technically speaking, America was the authority, right? But in reality, people were living however they wanted to live because they were not going to be held to account, right? Now, as uh, the civil authority as the rule of law, as lawmen began to come into the West, what began to happen? They began to establish that civil authority. And and the authority that was, uh, in principle, the authority of the of the West at one time became, in fact, the authority of the West. Does this make sense? And so for a period of time, there was lawlessness and there was freedom. But uh, as the rule of law, as the civil authority moved into the West, eventually, uh, the rule that people began to see who was actually in charge, right? And they began to live via those rules. Now, if you were living in the Old West and were living under, uh, under an authority that you knew was coming, right, but was not yet present, if you were living in the Old West and you were living under an authority that you knew was coming, uh, American rule, the, the American rule of law that said don't steal and don't kill, and all of those things, right? You could live under that authority while in some real and true sense, everyone around you was kind of casting off restraint and not living that way, right? Because they, they didn't feel as though that authority had any oversight on top of them. Does this make sense? You could choose to live outside the authority of the American government, even though in fact the government was, the, was technically over on top of you. And until this point in the book of Colossians, Paul has been telling the church that they were created to live in the world that Jesus was create Jesus has made, that they were created to live under the authority of the Lord of the King Jesus, that they were created to live in his kingdom, but that in their immediate surroundings they could not yet see that authority fully vested. They could not see that that authority was, in actuality, come fully into existence. But yet, Paul continues to tell the church that Jesus is the true king, that ultimate authority belongs to him, and that through his death and resurrection, this whole new world, this kingdom has been made available to those who follow him, who who believe in him, who have placed their faith in him, who have been baptized in his name and by so doing have died to their old way of life and have been risen to a new life in Jesus. And Paul has been telling the church that they need to begin to live their lives under this new authority, this authority that is ultimately the, the ultimate authority over everything, but, in, but that in their current circumstance does not always seem that way. They need to understand how living under the lordship and authority of Jesus is different from living under the authority or the lordship of Caesar in their day. So in our text for this week, Paul talks about what that actually looks like. Paul gets into some practical implications of what it looks like to live under the lordship of Jesus as opposed to living what he sometimes calls the lordship of the world, what what he sometimes refers to as um, the kingdom of the flesh or the kingdom of the world. He he refers to this alternative way of living in multiple ways, but what he's really attempting to get down deep at, what he's really attempting to communicate to this Colossian church, that a new way of living that a new orientation, a new kingdom has come and that it is available for them. And if they follow Jesus, they are a people who are called to live under this new authority, under this new rule, under this new reign, under this whole new way of being. And Paul wants to get to the center of what it looks like to live that way, of what what Christians, how Christians should live. He says at the very beginning of chapter 3, that Savannah read for us. Since then, you have been raised with Christ, right? Since, since you have been raised with Christ, since you've been brought into this new way of existence, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Since you have died to your old ways, you've been raised to new life with Jesus in baptism, Paul says, now this is how you ought to live. So you could say that in many ways, uh, you could say this uh, in, in a ton of different ways. You could say, um, how do we live in God's new world is one way of putting this. How should, we, how should we as followers of Jesus live? There's all kinds of ways that we can talk about the way in which we conduct ourselves. But Paul is really getting to the heart of what it means to live as a Christian, as a follower of Jesus, how, what it means to live with our lives ordered around the kingdom of God rather than what we might see in our immediate vicinity or in our, in our culture today what Paul will sometimes refer to as the kingdom of this world. So today, I know this is a really big passage, and uh, Paul said a lot of things in it, but I'm going to kind of break it down for us into two different sections. The first section that Paul goes into here are about actions to avoid. So actions to avoid, things that Christians should not participate in, sins technically that Christians should not do. And he says this, uh, because not doing these things is for the good of your soul, for the good of uh, for the good of your life. That by virtue of avoiding certain actions, you can actually live into what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That that followers of Jesus, people who are living into the new world that Christ has made available to us, are people who don't do these types of things. He does say this. These are some things you should not do. And he essentially breaks those things down into two categories as well. He says, learn... uh, learn uh, what not to do with your body because your body is valuable, is one section. And then he says, learn what not to do with your mouth because what you say matters, right? These are two ways that he breaks this down. So he goes into that section about uh, actions to avoid, and then he goes into another section where he talks about things to do, or he even starts to use the language of clothing. He says, put on these type of actions, attitudes, Uh, pick up these type of activities, be this type of person. So he essentially breaks these down into two sections, uh, things to avoid and things to actively do, things to passively avoid and things to actively do. But before we get specifically into those two sections, I want to talk for a second about an idea that I think we can often get bogged down in when we start to talk about these activities that we are called to avoid And the word that I'm putting on this this idea this morning is the word moralism. Is anybody familiar with the word moralism? Moralism is the practice of moralizing, especially showing a tendency to make judgments about other people's morality, right? Moralism. And really, this idea of moralism is one that has plagued religion, Right? It has plagued religion in general. This is what Jesus attacks the Pharisees for to a certain extent. And it also plagues uh, the type of, uh, in America particularly, evangelical Christianity. Right, we are, uh, this, this kind of sin of self-righteous moralism can occasionally accompany our pursuit of Jesus. And very often this, this kind of self-righteous moralism is tied to the, things, the sins to avoid. Right? Very rarely is moralism tied to the active ways in which we participate with the kingdom of God, right? Nobody gets really moralistic about being kind or being loving or being gentle, right? People get really moralistic about, um, about the things we do with our body, right, primarily. Primarily, it, it, it's, it's located around sexual stuff, Right? And we can kind of turn the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of Paul about the healthy ways in which we should conduct ourselves physically with our body, or he goes on to talk about the ways in which we use our mouth. We can turn these, um, we can turn these principles about things that we should avoid for our own good into a kind of self-righteous moralistic right, self-righteous moralistic religiosity, right? That makes us not pleasant people to be around. We can. Everyone knows that. This sounds bad. You've all had that family member. Right, who is really, really fixated on that one those one or two bad things that everybody else is doing right and they and they just lock onto that thing and it becomes this kind of badge of honor, and they judge everybody else in their in their surrounding environment by that, and what often that does is it kind of closes them off to their own sin, right it kind of closes them off to those areas in their own lives where they can 't see clearly what they may or may not be doing it it's not always a good thing there is a, a uh, orthodox uh, archbishop named, I think I, we have his quote up here, uh, Archbishop Lazar, L-A-Z-A-R, Puhalo, P-U-H-A-L-O. I'm not confident that's how you pronounce that name, but it's a good quote, so I'm going to read it. He says, if our faith is primarily a mantra to drive away punishment, our faith isn't really a faith, it is fear. We feign faith in order to keep from being punished. When we do this, it usually manifests manifests itself as a kind of harsh and brutal moralism. Because in this system, it is psychologically comforting to see ourselves as better than other people. Thus, trying to hype up our ego leads us to a kind of moralism where we have to uh, denigrate others in order to make ourselves feel better. Right? This happens. This happens in religion. This happens in certain streams of Christianity. It's a temptation for anybody, really, who does follow Jesus to to depend on our own morals rather than on the life-giving kind of influx of power from God himself. Rather than dwelling on the love and grace that God has given us and understanding ourselves as being sinful and in need of that grace just as much as anybody else, we can kind of dwell on these kind of moralistic, what-not-to-do type actions, and it can lead us down this path that the archbishop so eloquently shared. It's really a reduction of what Paul is even saying here, because he says to avoid these things, not because, um, not really because of any other reason than that they, by avoiding these things, you will live a fuller life, right? It's not just there is a punishment component there, but it's not just to avoid punishment. It is in some real sense that, that by avoiding these things, you are able to step into the kingdom of God in a more full and complete way. Your, your, your life is able to flourish in some real and true sense if you uh, avoid these things. This is what people who follow Jesus are like. They work, they attempt to the best of their ability to avoid these types of things, Paul says. And so it's important that we talk about them, it's important that we see them, but it's also important that we avoid the type of moralism that leads us down the path of just emptying out the richness of what it means to follow Jesus and replacing that richness with just a bunch of rules. This is why children rebel, right? Because we've emptied out the richness of what it means to be a Christian in order to live in Jesus's new world, and we've replaced that richness with just a bunch of rules, and this is the natural consequence, right? When we see moralism, when people in culture see moralism, what they, what they often are is just simply repulsed by that. And people were never repulsed by Jesus, right? Because he corrected, right? He spoke truthfully about the way in which the world was. He didn't, he didn't hold his words to himself in any real and true sense, but he did do that all in such a way that did not uh, judge people, but always approached them with love and kindness. So the encouragement to you, as we look at these actions to avoid in a little bit more detail, as we think about uh, why and how we as Christians are called to to avoid certain activities, certain things in uh, that many times in culture people believe to be simply good, that the way in which we approach these is, is important, not as disembodied rules, not as uh, not as emptied out kind of regulations, but rather. As, as a way of living that leads us to life, leads us to fullness, leads us to health. Does that make sense? You tracking? Good, good, good. So, uh, beginning in verse 5, Paul says this, on, under actions to avoid. He says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways In the life that you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self and its practices, and have put on your new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the Creator." And so he really breaks these down into two things, right? Like we said earlier, he breaks them down. This section is kind of broken down into two things. Paul, specifically to the Colossian church, says, what you do with your body is important. And so be careful, right? Avoid sexual immorality and the like. And he says, secondly, uh, what you say, what comes out of your mouth, essentially, what, what he calls slander, lying, anger, rage, malice, filthy language, all of these things need to be avoided, because what you say, what you speak matters. So first we're just going to hit on this idea of what we do with our body matters, what Paul calls sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, which is idolatry. Some people think it's interesting that you put greed in there with that, but if you've ever seen uh, greed is something that's, in, in the scriptures, is very closely associated. If, if you're greedy, if you're unable to handle, uh, if you're greedy towards money, very often those, that's very closely wedded uh, to sexual immorality in the scriptures. Um, I think anytime we see a movie of a rich person that's run amuck, very often <laughs> sexual immorality will be right there with that thing, right? Um, the ability to control your money and handle it well and not be greedy is very closely related to your ability to uh, keep your body under control in the scriptures. Just a little side note. Anyways, so what we do with our body is important. Biblical wisdom on this tells us that the way in which we engage our biblical desires says something significant about the God we serve. And if we are people who are being raised with Christ, we do not give ourselves fully over to sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and the like. Because we know that a better world is coming. A world, and in our world, we kind of miss this mark, don't we, very often. The body is seen as something that I can do with what I please, and that I can kind of go after my own desires, my own wants, my own my own wishes as often as I want because it belongs to me in some really real and true sense and the way I act the way in which I conduct myself with my body is simply a byproduct of my natural urges or desires and why repress anything? Why why push back or push down anything that is natural to me? Now this is interesting because Christians have always believed from the very beginning of the scriptures, that that word natural creates some problems for us, right? Because Jesus wants to in some real and true sense, change our nature. That Christian, Christian theology, the, the, the way in which we read the Bible says that my innate nature, my human nature is in some way twisted. And that in order to bring it into line with the kingdom of God, I need a new heart. I need Jesus' help. I need the spirit dwelling within me. But I also need to work to curtail some of those natural desires because some of the things that I naturally want are not healthy for me, right? That I could naturally be predisposed to some ways of conducting myself that might not be great. And that simply unleashing myself or allowing myself full range of motion within my natural desires is not a good thing. Because my, my natural desires need to be in some way curtailed. Or maybe curtailed is not even the right word. Maybe channeled in the right direction is the right way of saying it. You see, Jesus came not to, uh, not to just rain on our parade, right? Not to just stop us from having fun. Not to just, not to just make us do things we don't want to do, but rather to bring life. And Christians have always believed down through the ages that uh, one of the keys to living life well is learning to curtail, is learning to focus, is learning, is learning to use, uh, see in our natural desires and wants, a, a healthy expression of those things and a less healthy expression as well. And so Paul says for Christians for people who follow Jesus, for people who are living into this new world that Jesus is creating, that it's important that you not give yourself fully over to every impurity, every lust, every desire, every want, because that will ultimately lead us somewhere we don't want to go. What feels to uh, to people outside the church like Christians simply being restrictive or rule-based is actually wisdom given to us by the one who created our very bodies, about how to live. This is what Paul is talking about in that section. And the second thing Paul addresses here is what we say with our mouths, right? What we, what we, what we communicate, what comes out of our mouths, what words we actually say. Beginning in verse 8 and 9, he says this, but but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, that's an important one, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, right? This is what Paul is talking about, this new world, old world, this kingdom of God, kingdom of the world type of dynamic that we are talking about. Since you have taken off your old self, that you have died to that old way of life, and you have put on, he begins to use another analogy of kind of putting on uh, righteousness like it is, like, like clothing, right? Like it's a shirt or a jacket. He says, begin to clothe yourself in this. Begin to put on something other than this type of uh, rageful, uh, malicious, gossipy, filthy language, slander, and lies. He says, he says no longer do these things. In Christian circles, it is easy to get really hung up on, the, on verse 5 and 6 and 7 and not talk very much about verses 8 and 9. It's very easy to get caught up on the sexual immorality stuff, and we can be very judgmental about that, going back to the moralism thing. And we can forget about the importance of the ways in which we speak. And Paul, in some real and true sense, puts these two things on the same kind of level of importance here. These are are things that we are called to avoid. We We don't often in the Christian church speak out publicly about the ways in which we speak, right? We're very quick to speak out publicly about the ways in which our politicians conduct themselves sexually. We're very slow to speak out publicly about the ways in which our politicians speak, right? This is true. This is true. But yet, Paul seems to believe that this is very, very important. That Christians are people who speak well Jesus has this teaching in the gospel, and he says that what comes out of our mouth comes from what he calls the wellspring of our heart, this place in the, in the core of our being, right, uh, that determines who we are, that, that the words we speak, that the way we speak, that the things we say, that the things we say about other people, that the type of uh, emotions that come out of us in our speech are indicative of what's actually happening inside of us. And so in some real and true sense, what comes out of your mouth is a great indicator of what's going on in your heart, of what's going on in your heart, to which we all kind of bury our heads in our bulletins, right? (laughs) Because we don't always like that, that the things that I say are semi-indicative of what is actually on the inside of me. It hurts all of us, right? Because we all know the ways in which our mouths get away from us. We all know the ways in which we say things that we wish we could have taken back, but we can't because they're out there and they're in the world. And Paul says almost like use your words, use your mouth as, a, as an indicator, as a barometer of the health of your heart. Use the things you say, the, the, the things that you say randomly, the, 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 the random things that come out of your mouth or are said in your head when you're having a problem with somebody out in the world right? When you run into somebody that you don't like, when you're in that split moment, something comes out of your mouth that is not pleasant, right? Use that as a barometer to the health of your heart. Because very often, uh, it is a really good indicator of what's going on in the inside. Now, I'm, I talk for a living. I feel like I should have been getting paid for it my whole life. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, but only the last couple of years is this part of why, how I make my living. Uh, but I have one blessing. One, one great thing has happened to me. Some people, when they get mad, can fire off. You know somebody like this? Somebody who, when they get mad, their mouth goes fast, right? When I get mad, my words stop working, which is a great blessing. Because there are things happening up here that are not good, but they don't come out of my mouth. I just get mumbly and stumbly, and I can't really say anything. Uh, I speak best when I'm calm, uh, which I makes which was frustrating sometimes when you're in junior high, and you'd like to fire back at that kid. But as an adult is really nice, because when somebody cuts me off in traffic, I just <laughs> it's, it's kind of how it goes. Uh, But it's not to say, just because these words aren't coming out of my mouth, is not to say that these these words aren't in me, right? Just because I'm not able quite to say them. It's a blessing in marriage as well. But uh, (laughs) just for the record, Ashley and I are a little opposite in this regard. Her mouth works good when she's mad. Uh, Anyways. uh, (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Anyways. uh, The... But it's important to realize that that doesn't necessarily mean, just because it's not coming out of my mouth, doesn't mean I'm not saying it, doesn't mean I'm not thinking it, doesn't mean these aren't the words that are springing forth from the core of my being. And Paul says people who, Christians who follow Jesus, ought to be people who are beginning to have things bubble up out of the center of them that are not rageful, malicious, slanderous, lying, They should be things like the things he moves on to here in the next section of scriptures. They should be things like kindness, humility, gentleness, and love. Paul moves from these things that we should avoid, right? Language that uh, shouldn't be coming out of our mouths and ways of which we're dealing with our body that aren't healthy. He moves on to these active things. attitudes, emotions, activities that we should be participating in, things that Christians should be putting on. And he continues to use this image of clothing as a means of articulating what Christians should be doing, what what attitudes and emotions should be flowing out of the core of our being rather than uh, the other ones. And the things he says here are things like kindness, humility, gentleness, and love. Christians are people and he says this, right, whose minds are being renewed, whose minds are being renewed, who are becoming more loving and more generous and more kind and not less so, right? That Christians are people who are actively seeking to live in the new world that's been made made available to us through Jesus, and we are becoming more like Jesus and less like not Jesus, right? This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live in Christ's new world. Our minds are being renewed, and we're being invited to walk more and more and more in the kingdom of God, in the in the realm or the sphere in which things are as God would have them to be. We're being, we're being invited to put on the mind of Christ, to, to think G- Jesus's thoughts, right? To to have emotions and attitudes that flow more from that place, more from this new world of life and love and goodness and grace, than from this old world of kind of death and slander, right? This is what Christians are called to do and be. If you struggle with kindness, Jesus wants to help, right? If you struggle with humility, Jesus wants to help. If you don't feel like you're a very gentle person, Jesus wants to help you learn how to do that. If you are not or you struggle with love, Jesus, the very definition of love, wants to help With that as well. He wants to clothe us in these new attributes. He wants to place peace in our hearts. And he wants, at the end of this passage, it's really interesting, because Paul begins to say that the church is called to encourage one another in this activity. He he says, encourage one another, sing songs to one another, right? Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, he says. As a community of people, we ought to be about the business of encouraging one another, to begin to to learn to live how learn to walk and live in this new world that Christ has made available to us that Christians in some real and true sense are people we are a society of people who are longing who are desiring who are working to live in God's new world right we don't do it well all the time we most certainly don't do it perfectly but we are a group of people we are we are we are we are we are, we are a conglomeration right of people who are attempting to live into the new reality made available to us through Jesus. We are like a little town in the Old West who is trying to the best of our ability to live up to the standard of the syllable authority, even though everyone around us is not acknowledging that reality. This is what the church is in some real and true sense. And this is what we are called to do. And so part of the interesting piece of this passage is not simply that Paul says, you as an individual, don't do this and don't do this and do this and do this and do this. He says that, that we are called to avoid certain things and to actively do other things. But he says that the community of faith has an active role has a responsibility in this process, that as we pray for one another, as we sing songs together, as we live life on life together, as we speak with one another, as we share our lives with one another, as we confess our sins, as we confess some of the ways in which we have, are still given over to these old ways of being to one another, we are to encourage one another. We are to build one another up. We are to live life together, uh, stretching one another and pulling one another and encouraging one another into this new Creation into this new world that Christ has made. And God has put each of us here in this church together for that very purpose. You have that responsibility one to another, right? This is not, Christianity is not a, uh, it's not a solo sport, right? It's not like, what's a good solo sport? Ski jumping? There's not multiple people that ski jump. Uh, That would be dangerous. Somebody land on somebody. Uh, it's, not, it's not a solo sport, right? It is a community activity. We are a community of the redeemed, the scriptures say. We are not individual people. We are a community who are responsible for and to one another to see this happen in all of our lives. Paul finishes this, uh, this chapter speaking specifically about love. About how, above all, love should be the defining characteristic. That love should be the thing that defines each and every one of us. That that love should be what rules in our heart, right? Or let peace rule in our heart. But that, that love is this great defining characteristic of the Christian community. And that love rules everything we do. Love is the the driving force behind why we don't do certain things. Love is the driving force behind why we do other things. Love is the defining characteristic. And if we don't put on love like like a shirt, like a new jacket, if if we don't clothe ourselves in that as a community, if we don't encourage one another in love as a community, that ultimately none of the things Paul says here will matter much. In the new world of God's creation, the only law on the books, is love. The only, the only rule any of us really need to follow, ultimately, when Christ appears, is love. And if we capture that reality, if we, if we live into that reality well, if we encourage one another in that reality as a community of faith, then we will begin to live lives that flourish under the kingdom of God. We will continue, begin and continue to live lives that exemplify the character and nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. We will, in some real and true sense, be able to extend love, peace, goodness, gentleness, kindness, self-control out into the world. That those things would be the hallmark of who we are rather than a kind of legalistic moralism, right? If we make love the center of our being, if we make love the center uh, of our community, if we make the love of Jesus the center of who we are, then everything about us will change. Everything about our community will transform. And we will carry that truth out into the world, and it will be transformative as well. And people will get free. People will be whole, right? And Jesus will be pleased with who we are being built into. The other image we have in the scriptures of what the church is is a a beautiful house uh, that, the, that each person in the church is like a brick in this beautiful house or cathedral that's being built up into the glory of God. And if we make love the center of what we are and who we are, and if we live into this new reality that's been made available to us through Jesus, then we will do that very thing. Let's pray. Jesus, would you be with us here today? Would you bind us together as a community of faith that uh, does want to avoid certain activities because they're not good for us, and does want to live into other activities because they are uh, because they are good for us. Because they all are hallmarks of your kingdom. Jesus, would you help us to be your people this week? Would you help us to live into the kingdom that that is coming? That very often in our immediate vicinity we don't see very often in our, uh, in our daily to day life doesn't feel like it is coming, doesn't feel like you will be revealed as the Lord and Savior of the universe. Uh, but God, uh, we ask that you would help us to live into that reality. We do. And we pray it all in your name. Amen and amen. Yes. T- Tim is going to make a special announcement that he didn't t- talk to me about, so we'll see how this goes. I know this always makes